So when you think about Easter Sunday, how many of us think about Cleopas? Raise your hands. <laughs> Good. Nobody's a liar. Good. Glad to hear that. Um, yeah, every year we come to Easter Sunday, and you're probably wondering, wait, where, where's that empty tomb story, that story that I know I've heard, the story that I think I know? And, and it's funny, that's, that's Easter-like morning, the, the very cracking dawn of it, but that's not the Easter day story in Scripture. In fact, the, the authors go on to tell us what happens during the course of the Easter day. And truth be told, the Easter empty tomb story didn't happen at 11 a.m. Sorry, folks online and in the room. It happened probably during the sunrise service when I know none of us were out on that north lawn because I was there and so was Andy, who's now attempting to take a nap on the front pew. Andy, you sleep away. She's a trooper. Now, around this time of the day, Luke tells us something else happened, something involving this guy named Cleopas. We haven't met Cleopas up until the very end of Luke's gospel. What a weird storyteller right? He's had 24 chapters to develop this incredible epic. And at the very end, he spends over half of his last chapter talking about some guy we didn't even know before now. And some person that doesn't even get named that's with him. That's weird. But it also should stop, make us stop to consider why. Why does Luke spend so much time with Cleopas and this friend as they journey to this place called Emmaus, or in English, hot springs, right? about seven miles away from Jerusalem, this little one-stoplight kind of town that nobody would have known anything about. And somehow this everyday guy, not one of the 11 apostles, but just a normal disciple and his unnamed friend are going from Jerusalem to Hot Springs. And that's what Luke wants us to notice on Easter. So notice we shall. We're going to begin in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13 where it says this. On that same day, two disciples were traveling to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about everything that had happened. And while they were discussing these things, Jesus himself arrived and joined them on their journey. They were prevented from recognizing him. Doesn't tell us why, but they couldn't tell that it was Jesus. He said to them, what are you talking about as you walk along? And they stopped, their faces downcast. The one named Cleopas replied, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who is unaware of the things that have taken place there over the last few days? What have you been living under a rock? And, he, and then Jesus says to them, what, what things? And they said to Jesus, The things about Jesus of Nazareth... Because of his powerful deeds and words, he was recognized by God and by the people as a prophet. But our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. All these things happened three days ago. We're going to stop there for now. Cleopas's hope struck a chord with me this week. 
as, as we heard just a, a moment ago, we, we don't know much about Cleopas, but we're given some clues as to who he was. This was somebody who, like so many others in Jerusalem, saw Jesus first and foremost as a new king, or a revolutionary, even a rebel, in fact. And, and, and Cleopas was prepared for the kingdom of God, not just in a spiritual sense, but the kingdom of God to break the chains of oppression of Roman rule. This was something that the people of Israel had prayed for for generations. In fact, everybody in Jerusalem would have been talking about what had taken place. It's why Cleopas can't understand why this guy doesn't understand what they're talking about, because the headlines on the local papyrus scrolls would have read, would-be rebel leader executed. That, that would have been the talk of the town. There's a reason why Jesus is, is crucified after he enters in on Palm Sunday, heralded as a king, and, and then he's confronted and taken into arrest, and then crucifixion is his punishment. Why crucifixion? Not just because they wanted to end his life, but because crucifixion is the way that you end someone's life in the most public and humiliating way. It's the kind of punishment you reserve for someone who thinks they have the gall to stand up to Caesar. So you put him on a cross and you let the whole town know this is what happened to people who question Rome. And so Cleopas sees his hopes die as well. Not so much as a scuffle, not so much as a fight, not so much as a whimper. It's over. This rebellion that he was prepared to join is over. They stay for a couple days and they make their way back to Hot Springs, back to the one light town that nobody knows back to a life where they have no hope. Notice the grammar that Cleopas uses. We had hoped. That grammar's in the Greek as well. That hope is done. It's gone. It existed once, but, but not anymore. It, it's, it's dead. It's buried. And now Cleopas is walking away from what he had once hoped. And he's journeying, wonder, wondering maybe fearing that he already knows what comes next. We had hoped. Those are three words that just sat in my gut as I was reading this story this week. Because I know every single person in this room and every single person, wherever you are, there are things in your life that you had hoped. Maybe you had hoped, maybe we had hoped that the illness would heal. Maybe we had hoped that the marriage would last. Maybe we had hoped that our, our, our children would grow up a certain way. Maybe we had hoped that legislation would or would not pass. Maybe we had hoped that the promotion would come. Or maybe we had hoped that the money would not run out. We had hoped, we had hoped, we, we had hoped. But that hope is gone. Like Cleopas, that hope has died. And I think Luke invites us to see ourselves in this story, to imagine ourselves as the one alongside Cleopas. Maybe that's why Cleopas' friend doesn't have a name. So that we could see our own hopes, that we had hoped, and begin to see that the truth in this story is that the resurrecting God, the, the resurrecting and resurrected God meets us when hope has in fact left us. 
that Easter is not simply for people of hope. It's actually for people without hope. It's for people journeying on the road, the long and dusty road to the one spotlight town of Hot Springs, away from all the hopes and dreams and back to the numbing and punishing reality that we were trying to escape. It's for the people who had hoped. That's where God meets us closest. Easter is not for the faint of heart. It's certainly not for slapping sunshine on our sorrow or offering trite and tired cliches to the one sitting in the valley of the shadow of death. I would argue that Easter will always be at arm's length unless and until we are willing to get real about the ways in which our hopes have died. Because that's the space. Don't be afraid of that space. That's the space where, where God draws nearest, even if at first God's presence, like for Cleopas, is unrecognizable. But the story keeps going. Cleopas keeps talking. He's, he says, there's more. There's more. Some women from our group have left us stunned. They went to the tomb early this morning, and they did not find his body. The they came to us saying that they had even seen visions of angels who had told them he is alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found things just as the women had said. They didn't see him. You know, just like Cleopas, you, you and I are simply those who get to hear about the empty tomb. We, we didn't get to see it with our own eyes. Again, Luke is writing a gospel for the everyday person, the everyday Disciple, the folks who don't get to be in the empty tomb. And if we listen closely to Cleopas' voice, we can tell that he hears the testimony, but he's not so sure he believes it. He's walking back to Hot Springs, after all. He says, yeah, I know what they said, and, and yeah, I know what the other people found, but I don't know. In fact, Luke's gospel is chock full of doubts in the end. The women at the empty tomb doubt what they see at first, and then Peter doubts them, and then Cleopas and his friend are doubting them, and then the disciples are all doubting. In fact, when Jesus appears in the flesh before the disciples, they continue to doubt until they force him to eat a piece of fish. True story. Weird, but true. Evidently, Jesus is a pescatarian. It's chock full of doubt. And, and you know why I think that is? I think it's good news for us today that Luke's gospel is full of doubt because I know myself, and I think I know you well enough to know that you and I and all of us, wherever we are, are full of doubts ourselves. And Luke is wanting to offer us an honest and a real gospel because Easter isn't just for the hopeless, it's also for the doubtful. And here you thought only folks with syrupy sweet smiles and the best pastel shirts and the loudest amens from the pews were Easter people. Can I get an amen? Just kidding. I think Luke is trying to make clear to us as Easter people that faith is not simply the absence of doubt nor the conquering of it, but the leaning into it. Luke shows us person after person who is chock full of doubts, and they lean into those doubts. They, they go into the empty tomb. They continue down the walk to Emmaus with Jesus by their side. They, they welcome him in. They invite him to eat fish. Faith means holding doubt and then choosing curiosity over cynicism. It's the decision to act and to live into our doubts as though the proof were at hand. The gospel is not reserved only for the blindly faithful. It is for us. 
the people who hold doubts alongside of our faith. And so maybe you doubt the Easter story, and, and Luke would say, good, you're paying attention. Keep paying attention. Keep walking. What if doubt and faith and hopelessness and resurrection could all be found here in this day? Because we need an honest Easter. And honestly, we've all got our doubts, even when we do say, he is risen. Amen. So the story continues on, and, and Jesus pauses and expresses some frustration because he is human and divine, after all. And, and, and then it says, they came to Emmaus, they came to Hot Springs, and he acted as if he was going to go on ahead. Jesus was going to keep on going. But Cleopas and his friend urged him, saying, stay with us. It's nearly evening. The day is almost over. You know, traveling by foot on these country roads is not safe. And so he went in to stay with them. After he took his seat at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and it gave it to them. Sounds like the Last Supper, right? Their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. Oh, Jesus, it's you. Nope, bye. Right? <laughs> they said to each other, weren't our hearts on fire? I love the Greek there because it's like their heart is a candle that's unlit and that they're saying they're, the candle of their heart was lit when he spoke to us along the road and when he ex explained the scriptures for us. Hope for the hopeless, right? They got up right then and they returned to Jerusalem in the night through the danger and all the risk and rain and they go back to that place where they thought hope could not be found. They found the eleven and their companions gathered together and they were saying to each other, the Lord really has risen. He appeared to Simon Peter and then the two disciples described what had happened along the road and how Jesus was made known to them as he broke the bread. So speaking of doubts, Luke wants us to wrestle with this idea of a resurrected body. I think it matters to Luke that we, we take notice of the resurrected body of Christ in a couple of key ways. Number one, that the physical person, the body of Christ, the person of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but, but for me, in my personal Christian theology, the, the concept of bodily resurrection matters to me, because I see it matters to the gospel writers like Luke. Remember, Luke is an author who's writing to real people in real places, living real lives. And for God to be resurrected in spirit, and for this to just be good things to think and feel about, I think Luke would say, no, I need a God who has lived this life in the flesh, who bears the scars and bears the burdens of what life in this world really does look like. Who can identify with the working poor? Who can identify with the people who are under the heel of Rome? Who knows what that's like, not just in a spiritual sense, but in a real bodily sense, because that is what we are. And I think Luke recognizes that that can be difficult to believe. In fact, no doubt, and for well-founded reasons, there are many of us in the room who go, I just don't know. I, I don't know about that. And I think Luke points us to something else. For when we can't see, we can't touch, we're not in the room with Jesus. We didn't, don't get to go to the empty tomb. He knows that the ears hearing his gospel didn't have that benefit. And so Cleopas and his friends say, we saw Jesus when we broke bread with him. When he came into our home and we sat down and we shared a meal. That breaking of bread is not just the physical act of sharing food, but the symbolic act of sharing presence with one another, real physical presence with each other. 
The body of Christ is not simply the person of Jesus, my friends, but it's the gathering of the people that Jesus loves. Wherever any of us gather together and practice that kind of faith that lit a fire in Jesus' heart and lights a fire in Cleopas' heart and can light a fire in ours as well, we prove the power of Easter all over again. Luke believes this, that our faith in the unseen God can be found when we choose to welcome in the very people that God loves that God loves so dearly that God would come and live and die and live again, that kind of love for all the earth. Resurrection is one of those things that as a Christian preacher, as a Methodist preacher, I, I preach a lot, but this week I was wondering how resurrection might show up in my life in a real and tangible way. Where am I seeing the body of Christ at work? And I, I want to talk to you about one specific way where I see resurrection made real in this world today through the work of this community called AUNC. It's about a ministry called Live Like Luke. I know many of you have heard of this and many of you have not. And so I want to share a little bit about some background before I tell you about the work that's being done. About a year and a half ago, there's a family in this church named Beth and Derek who've blessed me to share this story with you today. And their son, Luke, passed away um, at a young age after about a year-long battle with a rare form of leukemia. And... Um, I'll be honest, you talk about hopelessness, we had hoped. And you talk about holding doubts. I can confess as a pastor, I hold plenty of doubts. I was in a place of hopelessness and doubtfulness alongside them and so many others here in those days. And I'll be frank, I wasn't sure what resurrection would look like because I had never experienced that before as a pastor. What in the world does resurrection look like when you're faced with something so difficult as that? Thankfully, as a pastor, I get to be in community with people like Beth and Derek who are able to show resurrection to me when I can't see it with my own eyes. So they were brave and bold enough to invite their friends and family and folks from this community and in a much larger community to give. Uh, to give generously in honor of Luke's life to something that they were calling Live Like Luke. And they weren't sure what it was yet. They were building the bridges they walked across, but they, they wanted to raise some money so they could help families that were in a similar situation to theirs, but families who might be suffering financially in a way that, that, that would uh, make it even more difficult for them to be present with their children as they battled uh, difficult medical diagnoses. And, and they wanted to, to make space, just space for grace, not, not fix everyone's problems, but, but to make a meaningful impact in the lives of people who shared a story to theirs. What they weren't prepared for was the level of generosity that came from the people who know them and love them. In fact, they received so much money in their, um, in their community foundations fund that, that uh, they reached out to me and they're like, we don't know what to do. Can you help us? Can the church help us with this? And I said, absolutely. Um, I didn't really know what to do either, but thankfully I'm in a community with people who are really smart and gifted at this kind of stuff. And so we put together a ministry called Live Like Luke, where we could essentially be the ones that come into contact with the families and disperse those funds uh, to families that need those funds to make a difference, a meaningful impact in a short period of time. And, and we went even further than that. This community decided to, to raise additional funds for the purpose of hiring someone at a part-time basis. Her name's Sarah Ewald. She's a, a, a social worker who understands that world and that community and could network us well and get us actually in touch with the families who need this help. And here's a snapshot of the work that's happened. I'm going to share some numbers and then I'm going to share some stories. 
In the last several months, from, from last fall until now, we've been able to award 16 grants to, to families in need, and that totals about $31,000 worth of grant dollars um, to folks. That's, that's rents being paid, that's cars being repaired, that's utility bills uh, being taken care of. And we have another almost $19,000 currently pending that we're just waiting to, to grant to these recipients as well. It's over $50,000 in less than a year's time that's making a meaningful impact in the lives of families, making a space for grace to show up. Here's, here's what that looks like in reality. Sometimes these stories have really happy endings, as difficult as they are. In July of 2020, this is from one family. They say, our daughter, Thea, was diagnosed with medulloblastoma. She went through three rounds of chemo, three rounds of high-intensity chemotherapy with stem cell rescue, and 25 cycles of radiation. Not even being three years old, she demonstrated what true strength, faith, and love look like that can only come from God. We thought we were done fighting with cancer, but in two short years, our other daughter, Ella, was diagnosed with the same cancer. She underwent the same chemo regimen, but finished without having radiation. We are thankful for the Live Like Luke Foundation that helped us during her treatment to repair our vehicle. They live in East Texas, and it makes it hard to get to the hospital when your vehicle doesn't work. Having two children fight something that no one should have to and that wasn't supposed to be genetic was an emotional, physical, and financial roller coaster. We are beyond thankful for this foundation. I'm, th I'm thankful for that story. There are others like it. There's a family whose daughter is unable to speak, and so it's imperative that her parents be with her as often, if not at all times, to help her communicate. And so one parent had to quit their job, and I don't know if your family's like this, but you need two incomes to survive. And so we were able to support them by paying their rent for two months while they figured out a longer-term solution. Doesn't solve everything, makes a space for grace. Another family, we helped a mom avoid eviction for her child who'd been discharged from the hospital with a hospital bed, a Hoyer lift, and endless medical supplies. She was being pressured to send him to a nursing home, but our support allowed them to stay together while she waited on a housing voucher. Doesn't solve everything, makes a space for grace. And sometimes, my friends, the stories are really hard, but I think they're even more important. Adam was a high school student who was diagnosed with a very rare and very progressive illness that made it difficult for him to breathe. And months of various treatments and breathing machines, his mom had been trying to make ends meet by working nights at a grocery store. And so we paid their mortgage and their car payment for one month. And you might be thinking, one month of, of rent and car, what does that do? Well, Adam did pass away from his illness. And here's the note that we received from their social worker. Adam died last week, and his mom relayed that without this help, she would not have been able to spend all that time that she wanted to, to spend with him. Their diagnosis was not one that had any resources available for it. Many of these grants are very focused, and like I said, his was very rare. And Live Like Luke was a miracle for this family as they got to have as many days as possible together. The gifts Live Like Luke is providing saves lives and prevents desperation. Words do not convey how very grateful I am. Friends, when I, when I see stories like that, when I, when I see the work that you are doing and allowing us to do as the people of God called AUMC, honestly, when I get to Easter, we all look great. Y'all look great. I love the matching Easter outfits. My kids match in their pastel plaid. I've got my fancy white stole on. We've got the Easter lilies. The orchestra sounds, well, they left. They sound phenomenal. 
The choir, sound, the choir stayed. The choir sounds so good. I love Easter. I love the hosannas. I love that he is risen. I love the amens and the hallelujahs. But I'll be honest, friends, I don't know if Easter is so much about that as it is about seeing a resurrection that isn't about happy endings, isn't about slapping sunshine and rainbows on sorrows in the valley of the shadow of death. But it's about giving a mother the chance to not choose between financial health and spending time with her son who is dying. That born out of tragedy and trauma. That is resurrection. That is Easter. That is hope for the hopeless. That is presence for the grieving. That is freedom for the oppressed. That's the kind of work that we're committed to here. And that's the kind of work that I pray Easter inspires us into that lights a fire within us. This is a community where we meet people on the road to Emmaus, where in hopelessness we choose presence over pithy proverbs. We're drawing near to our own doubts and our own grief and to, and to people holding both as well can be a source of salvation. Where out of all of this we encounter the living God who lives and breathes in the real everyday world with real everyday people. And we get to witness resurrection, not just in the historical Jesus 2,000 years ago, but in the eternal body of Christ. And so wherever you are on the road this Easter, may God's presence be made real and drawn near to you. May the unrecognizable become unmistakable. And may God's love light a fire in your own heart to see resurrection made real throughout all the earth. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.